Hello and welcome to a sunny edition of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and later on I'll be joined by my colleagues Chris Collins and Anton Rosenfeld. July has arrived and it's all systems go in the flower and fruit gardens. There's been masses going on at Garden Organic recently. Did you know we were on BBC Gardener's World TV programme last month? Presenter Sue Kent made a film about our heritage seed library and Monty Don called our work heroic. It was a real high point for us. If you haven't seen it, you can watch it on the BBC's Catch-Up. It's Gardener's World episode 11. It went out on June the 2nd. Let us know what you think. Just a couple of weeks later, we were at the Gardener's World live show, a great big flower and garden show at the NEC in Birmingham. Later in this podcast, you'll hear me talk to our head gardener, Emma O'Neill, about our exhibit there, packed full of organic gardening ideas to encourage biodiversity in your own backyard. Nematodes, grafted plants, garlic and blossom end rot are all subjects we tackled in the post bag this month, so keep listening for that. But before we start, I'd just like to thank our new sponsors, Viridian Nutrition. Viridian produce a range of award-winning ethical and organic supplements, which include vitamins, minerals, herbal oils and balms. I love the way they call themselves the vitamin company with an organic heart. Their supplements are stocked in over a thousand specialist health shops across the UK. So to find out more, visit viridiannutrition.com. That's V-I-R-I-D-I-A-N hyphen nutrition.com. But now it's time for me to join Chris in our virtual potting shed. Hello there, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, Fiona. Nice to see you. A little bird told me you might be a bit tired. <laughs> That's an understatement, probably. We've been, we've been doing all the flower shows, haven't we? We had an amazing Gardeners World Live, which I, when I was running around a lot, <laughs> doing a lot of talks, and I felt it was all very successful. I did, I have to admit, I did have a little indulgence and went to Glastonbury for four days. But that was amazing as well. So I've kind of come off the back of that. I'm going off to Jekka's Herb Farm at the weekend to do a bit there, and then maybe uh, things will return a little bit more, a bit more normal. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's the season. It's the season yeah, to yeah. be out and about, isn't it? That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, it certainly is. And certainly just is. Um, uh, without kind of getting ourselves sort of too tangled up in Glastonbury because we could go on for hours. But I understand that there's occasionally they do some garden exhibit. You know, there's, there's re- growing is represented at Glastonbury. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, of course, I mean, it's funny. I spoke to them and um, I went, there's an area called the Greenfields and there's lots of permaculture there. There's lots of um, gardeners there, really. I did a garden there seven years ago for Grow Wild right outside the press tent with all the great and the good. And it was very surreal experience, but it is there. And I think that's quite important because they're giving all these sustainability messages. You've got like compost toilets and take your rubbish away. But what I was saying to them is you need to take that message to these people and take, make sure they take it home with them. It's no point just having it inside this festival. You need to make sure that you're talking about biodiversity and sustainability at the festival, but giving them the ideas and the tips to them to take back to their own lives. You've got all these youngsters there that are really into green things, environmental things, but do they know how to practice it? And I think that's where there's room for people like us or, or people who are practicing sustainable and biodiverse gardening. I think that's right. And I think an event like that is an opportunity to get really inspired, isn't it? And, and that's what we all do. You know, we just want to inspire people to get on and grow, get on and garden, produce some of their own food, save water, think about ways in which, you know, your growing space, your garden can can make a difference. I think these, these coming togethers of, of, of people, whether it's a garden show, whether whether it's, whether it's Glastonbury, whether it's just something in your your local sort of mm. street or or town hall, I, I just think we you know focusing people on growing it, it's it's really where we're at at the moment. What I like about the festivals and the shows and stuff is, is you get this mix there of all these people probably from all different angles of life, and it's just where you can hit those key messaging. And I I, I don't want to go along and lecture anyone, but I know they're receptive to it, and I think that's where the strength comes in. And you hit the nail on the head there. If you haven't got money to go to Glastonbury or go to Flowers, just do it in your street at home. Just do like a focus on food, front gardens, back gardens. Just get that communication going. And we all know that um, it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding. It's interesting. We had a gathering at Wrighton in May, which was our our annual general meeting. But we also sort of whooped it up and had various things going on. It was really good fun. And there were some great ideas coming forward. One woman talked about 
something called veg out front. So she was putting her vegetable plants in her front garden so people mm. would stop and ask and then when she was harvesting she was making it all quite obvious having things sort of on tables out the front i, I just thought that was a brilliant idea yeah, yeah i've said this before There's, there was a big campaign in london probably still going but i remember it for 10 years ago called, yeah focus on fronts which was all the same thing and they were doing seed swaps because a lot of people you've got that little tiny sort of six by six you know if it's in meters two by two meters in the front of the garden where your porch is that, if you're using that as a cube and you've got obelisks in and trellises in and whatever, you can make that incredibly productive. You see it in Japan, in the south of Japan, every house has a little allotment outside where it's pak choi is, it's rocket is. So you're just utilising that space properly. And I think that's not difficult to do. You know, it's not the Chelsea Flower Show. Grow a bit of fresh food, put it in your sandwiches, put it in your salads. You can't lose. You just can't lose. If you've got the opportunity to do it where people can see it as well, I think that's what's so clever about that. But also, you know, people are really receptive this time of year. You know, if it's good weather and they're having a wander around sort of in the evenings, you know, the lighter evenings, you know, it's a time to be inspired. And, you know, the sun makes us feel better generally, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And to think, oh, actually, oh, gosh, if I if I sowed a few lettuce seeds, I, you know, they'd be up in three weeks and, and, and then I could have some of my own. I, I am a very nosy man when I walk down a road. I'm always looking at people's <laughs> plants. I'm amazed I've not been arrested a few times. If I see a plant I don't recognise, I'm in there. If you look at it in any other way, every time I walk down a road, it's a different journey because you're looking at nature and you're looking at plants and they change and they evolve and they grow and you, they feed you. And So it's just a nicer way to walk about in life. It just really is. Exactly. Notice it. Notice it around you. It's mm. It makes a difference, doesn't it? And I mean, they say now that even just a few minutes outside observing plants and insects, just a few minutes, you can, mm. you start to feel better. Within four minutes, I think, is what the research says, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Just have a walk down to the shop and, you know, see what you can see along the way and, and you'll feel loads better. And better, yeah. I, I have to say last night, at the moment, every year... For about three weeks, I get house martins outside off the balcony. Love I, get about, I get about 80 or 90 of them. They all eat on the wing, and they just fill the sky at dusk. For, and like, So you're out there for 10 minutes, and I go to bed happy seeing that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. such a simple thing. It's such a, such, such a simple, simple thing. I mean, it's hot now, uh, or at least has been. And, you know, no doubt we've got some more hot weather to come. And last year, I remember you, you know, you really got into your chilies and your melons. And, and actually, with that really hot spell, that must have been quite a success. So so how did it change your thinking this year? Well, it's been an interesting year. I, I have to talk a little bit about irrigation, because that's what's for and foremost in my mind, particularly because I haven't been here much. I actually came back after this weekend and all my hanging baskets were just blagged. Yeah, so I haven't got... <laughs> It is really sad because I know I grew it all from seed, but I, I kind of knew that if it was hot, I would probably back with a nick of time. I don't use irrigation systems. I think that they probably are a great idea if you get one of battery or solar, but you've all, I've always said to you, I like to water personally. Um, that's just the way I garden. But I watered them all. I gave them a really big drink as soon as I, that was the first thing I did when I came through the door and I looked out this morning, they've all sprung back to life. And I can't help feeling the incredible resilience of plants. You know, they're in this tiny bit of soil in a hanging basket and they just still produce, they flower, they fruit, etc. On the allotment, it's, uh, again, that's tricky. I need to go down there early. I need to water deep. That's how I, I just believe in that. I don't go down there every day and throw loads of water about at 11 o'clock in the morning. It'd be pointless. I go down very, very early and I... And I puddle, so I build compost up and concave it, and I just water deep. I give them a really, really deep drink, so I want those roots to get down and the plant to be more resilient. And I, that's really worked this time. I wonder, last year I did have really bad problems with runner beans and brassicas because of that heat. I've looked at them. I went down there this morning. I've looked at them. They look quite healthy this year, and I think it's because of all that April rain. I think we had a cooler spring and we had quite a lot of water. So it means those plants have got their roots down quite quick, I think, and they look fairly established to me. So I'm expecting uh, a bit more of an, an all-round crop this year, whereas last year, because of that really, really intense heat, really hot spring, I had really struggled with brassicas and runner beans and those plants that like their feet wet a bit more. So that's your veg, but what about flowers? I mean, if, if you do have a really hot spell, I mean, you talk about bringing your 
hanging baskets and your your window boxes back to life on the balcony um, by watering them. But but you must need to do a little bit of deadheading, get in there, cut things back a bit, give them a second flush. Yeah, well, I'm always deadheading. That's a constant job. I'm always grazing the deadheads off off uh, to keep the keep them flowering. But I just I've got some beautiful roses on the balcony. I just deadheaded all of them. I'm always picking over the DDD rule. You know, always get rid of the dead, deceased, and dying. You know, it sounds like the name of a heavy metal band, but it's good horticultural practice. <laughs> so I just like to keep the hygiene going um, and, and to keep the flowers going. And to make, I've got brilliant shard and spinach on the, in the baskets, so I'm grazing them as well as I go. So it's fairly – and the balcony at the moment is very, very active. There's lots going on with it, and I, I'm glad I got back in the nick of time. When it comes to the allotment flowers, I grow hardy, hardy annuals. So, you know, that like uh, slotches, poppies, uh, cornflowers – um, loving a miss, and they all like it dry and quite. Oh, they're kind of tough plants, and they'll just take they'll take the top the the the, uh, the hard times and still look magnificent and still keep the pollinators coming in. I do worry about my pots actually at this time of year, and I grow a lot of herbs in pots, as you know, and the, they are really looking quite stressed out. And I I do you know I do water them, but at the same time I don't want to water log them. I've got quite a few terracotta pots. I learned that to my peril last year. I, I had quite a lot of things in large plastic pots. And then of course, the water just sort of sits in the bottom of them and it just can't go anywhere. So it doesn't do the plant any good either. I've actually made a real effort to dig out any terracotta pots I can find and, and use those so that they kind of breathe more. But I don't know, somehow keeping them at the right level of moisture for those things that tend to prefer a Mediterranean climate, but even in the med, you know, they, they still need water. You know, they still yeah. need some mm. kind of moisture. It's really hard to get the balance right, I'm finding. Yeah, I call it, um, you know, like if you get a tissue and it's just slightly damp, that's how I kind of like my soil to feel and that's how I do it. I think it's a big thing as well with those pots is to get top dressing this time of year. I'm looking at what, what happens with my baskets and pots. I can see it happening, especially with the baskets, is the soil level starts to sink a bit. As you've got, as time's gone by, all the magpies nick all the moss out the top as well. So I've got two challenges there. But I think that top dressing is a very good thing because that will help, especially with a good compost, because that just that holds on to the moisture and it cuts down the amount of watering you want to do. But I always go around, I do a finger test, I'll get my finger in if the soil's sticking to my finger. There's a little granules of salt. I know the moisture's right, particularly with those more arid plants. If it's bun dry, you won't get that. If it's wet, it'll squelch. So you just want that slightly damp, a bit like I do in my houseplants. Never too wet, not totally dry. It's quite a good rule. I think there's something about the potting mix as well, you know. So I'm I'm learning all the time, as you know. Uh, I wrote about it in the organic way, actually. I mean, Anton has told me at the end of the season, in my spent compost just kind of, you know, just being a sort of lifeless, sort of pointless piece of matter you know he's he said you can revitalize it you know you can blend it with your homemade mm. compost you can blend it with some leaf mold you can use it again for you know be careful because if you you know if you've had some disease in the pots and stuff like that you don't want to be mucking up your hygiene but actually you can create an environment in a pot that does actually contain life because i think that's so important for the plants i think mm. you know it's easy to sort of go and buy a bag of of potting mix, peat-free, of course, but you know you're still buying something that's a sterile thing, aren't you? And and it does what you've just said. You know, it slumps in the pot, but then you're top dressing it with mm. some decent compost or some so homemade compost or or leaf mold or stuff that's actually going to bring some microbes into the soil, isn't it? Because surely it's going to improve the structure. Yeah, that there, and you hit the nail on the head there. A lot of purists who are organic gardens don't like the idea of pots because they say you can't feed the soil like you would in, a, in, a, in an open space. And, you know, there's an element of conflict there. If you were, I've always thought organic garden is an aspiration because where do you cut it off? You're always trying to step up that ladder, aren't you? I suppose. Yes, absolutely. You're yeah. always trying to step up that ladder. And I, and I, but I think that's true. I think that it is hard to be, to get a good soil ecology in a pot, but the top dress is the key. If you're feeding a little bit of seaweed extract, so you're putting those minerals into the soil. I think you can get some activity in there and I certainly proves in the pudding because I always have an amazing balcony but it's intense gardening and I need to keep on top of it but making sure you're just keeping your eye on those little details about topping up the levels and making sure the plant get in amongst it be observant and you'll get you'll get success and what about perennials you know again you know we've, we've, we talk about it a lot on the podcast perennial veg and you know perennial flowers and stuff but actually you know even in pots perennial planting can be quite exciting oh i've got quite a lot i've got i've got a beautiful albertine i don't know if you like your old roses i absolutely i adore 
I adore that plant yeah. and it's doing its thing at the moment. And it's resilient. I've planted Albertines, brought them into Tokyo um, years ago when I was working in Tokyo. I was the first guy to sell them in a shop out there. And they I could put them 12 floors up on a skyscraper in a pot and they would still do their thing. They're amazing plants. And I think that is husbandry. I've got a, a, a plant out there called uh, Nissa Selvatica, which is a member of the beach family. It was given me as a gift 15 years ago, and the bloke who gave it to me said, you'll never grow that in a pot. It's still going. It looks great. But I have to take care of making sure that soil is maintained, I top dress, and I feed, and I keep it going. Do not be restricted. It's not about the plants themselves. It's about how you your husbandry, making sure you're keeping an eye on them and seeing if they're stressing and making sure that soil is giving them a response. I presume you you must have to prune the, those roses quite carefully in those pots. Yes, well I do. I prune like I prune them outdoors. Like I've got the um, the, the Albertine. I'll cut that back to a framework in the autumn or late winter. So it, all the old wood, all the new wood comes off. I get it back to a frame. Then when the spring comes, it starts to produce new growth. There's my flowering wood. So I treat it exactly the same as if it was growing against the garage, really, to be honest with you. But the DD D rule is quite important because you want to keep the air moving through the plant. It's in quite a confined space. So cutting out any dead, crossing, rubbing wood to make sure the air's moving through the plant really, really helps. I don't want to get too depressing, but I've had a bit of a disaster in my garden. I have had box hedge moth. Yeah. Um, that has torn right through. Um, I had quite a lot of nice box in this garden. Nothing clever that I did. It was here when we moved here. Um, but I've just clipped it and maintained it, looked after it. Um, we had a, a row of about six um, box balls, um, beautifully shaped balls. You know, every year my kids would join in with the clipping of them. These have just been ripped through. They are now brown dead yeah so they just they, they just they just all the crisp up everything dies on the on the don't drop leaf they can retain they mummify basically don't they and i will say this um box is quite expensive to buy yeah um, it's got this disease and pest in it. and the reason the pest and disease hit it so hard is because there's so much of it it's a monoculture and so yes. it just you know it's that's just a really like, good point yeah there's loads to attack there are plenty of plants you can use instead of box at westminster abbey i use uh, lanissa and nitida which is a small sort of honeysuckle-related shrub, small leaves, makes a great hedging. I did not gardens with it. It looks great. It grows a lot quicker than box, which is probably why people don't use it as much. So you're out there clipping it more, but it's an absolute perfect substitute for box. There are a lot of other options out there than box. So I think maybe we need to mix our planting, our, our, our topiary planting, our pottage planting, our not garden planting, to make sure that it's not so prone and vulnerable. It's a really good point, isn't it? Because actually we get ourselves attached to certain species, you know, and then before you know it, you've got a monoculture on your hand. I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah. And I, um, you know, remember, I mean, the listeners won't know this, but I'm just about to tell you, Chris actually visited my garden about six weeks ago, which was really great for me because I got loads of advice. Um, but we were looking at the box, weren't we? And you you said that what happens is that you, the, the moth will have gone in then the plant is weakened mm. and then the disease goes in after it. It's, it's, um, you see it with the chestnuts as well. Most disease is secondary. So if a plant's already – the same as people, isn't it? If you're already struggling, you're prone to more – you know, you're prone to more illness. And it's the same with plants. That's why I definitely practice, to me, plant health is everything. I like good soils, healthy soils. I like to, if it's in containers, I make sure they get a lot, all the minerals they need. I love the tea with extract because it's a bodybuilder. It's a real sort of stimulant, a natural stimulant. So if my plant's healthy, I know it's going to bat off that disease a lot easier. I think so attention on good compost, good soils, making sure your plant's healthy will leave them less prone to attack. If you've got loads of the same plant, there's a more of a chance that there's, it's a bigger dinner plate for other things as well. Yeah, it's a really good way to look at it. And I, I have to say, I did think it was only a matter of time with the box because of the amount of blight that's around. So I did sort of think, gosh, well, if it hadn't been the box head moth, it would have been the blight. But it gives me a really good opportunity to mix it up a bit, um, you know, add uh, a greater diversity of, of those sorts of plants. That, that, that's, that's exactly how I would look at it. To me, I'd be sort of rubbing my hands a bit going, well, I'll, I'll redesign, I'll replant. I'll think it's quite, a, you know, there's a silver lining always with gardening because it gives you new, when one thing fades, a new opportunity arrives. And I think that's the art of being a gardener. Just moving back to compost for a minute, it's the time of year when, of course, it gets you know hot, and that the 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 compost is is sort of steaming away. But actually, can it get too dry? Do you tend to water your compost at all? I do, I do. Yeah. yeah. Well, when I was, um, I mean, it depends whether you want a hot or cold. I suppose you can just leave it and it do its own thing. That'll take a couple of years. 
you'll get brilliant compost that way. But obviously, because I've got quite a productive site, I like to turn it as quick as I can. So, uh, so I hot compost. I always, when I worked at Q, we do composting on this ginormous scale. We would use JCPs to turn it. Yes. And then we'd have these big, we'd have hose pipes (laughs) with big bubblers on it. I'm not sure about the the carbon footprint of it all, but uh, you put these big bubblers on it, turn, moisture churn, moisture churn. I do exactly the same thing on my allotment. I water it and I turn it with my arms because I get slow worms in there. You probably heard me say that before. So, yeah. I, so I turn it with my arms. I love to get lovely and dirty and grubby while I'm gardening as well. So that helps. And I turn it, but I keep that moisture. And all that means it speeds up the microactivity and it, and it just means you'll get a faster breakdown. Got to be a bit careful about getting too close to your compost, haven't you? I mean, it's seriously, you know, people do talk about, you know, if you're not careful and you ingest um, some of the spores off it, you've just got to be a bit careful. There's a lot of fungus. If you're worried about that, just wear a, wear a mask, wear a face yeah. mask. And, yeah, that's not yeah. a problem. Yeah. I think yeah. if I remember rightly, years ago, we used to do sterilizing the compost. So you heat it to certain. On the parks, you have this mad machine that heats it to a certain level, gets rid of all the pathogens and the weed seed, but keeps all the the, uh, the stuff you want. We all used to wear masks. That was back in 86, 85. So, you know, it's not a new thing. So I've got to ask you, Chris, my final question, July, star plant. Well, I think, oh, I'll tell you what, the, at the moment, well, I've got some great aubergines on the on the balcony. I'm a big fan of the aubergine, and they're really healthy looking, and all the flowers are on them, and, I, and I'm just really looking forward to those. Oh, oh, mine haven't flowered yet. Mine haven't flowered yet. They're looking like really lovely. Oh, they lovely grey foliage on yeah, the silver grey But my yeah. favourite place at the moment is I did the front of my block um, because it all, all the, they, the people who built the block – it all died. They didn't, you know, you they just do the last minute. They don't think about it. So I ripped all that out uh, about a year ago. And then last couple of weeks ago, I with all the neighbours and the neighbours' kids, we planted all the bedding in there. I put spinach in there. I put sunflowers in. The kids all wanted sunflowers. And it's really bursting into colour now. And it just makes a massive difference for everyone in the block because they're coming in and out that front door. There's a gym next door. There's a library. Everybody's walking past it. And it just lifts the place right up. So I... I'm a, they are my star plants at the moment for very good so reasons. So one particular, one particular one in that in that front. I'm imagining that front display out the. Well, front I think the, the the sunflowers. I've got um, yeah. just an old fashioned truck, but they're either side of the door. But the reason I say that is because. The children I did it with are empowered by it. They're invested in it. So they're out watering them. I have to water the rest of it, but they're out with their sunflowers and I've staked them for them and twined them. So the, so for every time those children leave this block, they're checking their sunflowers. And you know, to me, that's the beginning of a gardener. I think you're right. I mean, it's a complete miracle, the sunflowers. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. I'm going to tell you, Chris, just before we go with my star plant at this time of year, I think it's got to be the sage. I just think that particularly purple sage, you know, it's got the gorgeous silvery grey green leaves underneath. It's formed a great big sort of um, a kind of a great big mound. And then it's got these purple spears coming up. And sometimes if you're lucky, you get some flowers off it. But even if you don't, and just the foliage is incredible. And you can actually fry the leaves as well. You can just scatter a little bit of flour and salt and pepper and just fry the leaves up and just have these lovely sort of crunchy leaves or scatter them over something. Ah, you know me and my herbs. I love it. Anyway. <laughs> That's a good choice. That's a good choice, Fiona. I concur with that, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, great to chat once again. Look, looking forward to hearing all about how it's all gone next month. Cheers, Fiona. Always a pleasure. This year we created a small exhibit at Gardeners World Live, which majored on practical, achievable, low or no-cost solutions for our growing spaces. We all know that biodiversity is in decline, and we gardeners have an important role to support microorganisms, insects and small mammals. But, as organic gardeners, we know our practice has to change. But we also know our weather is causing new challenges for us. Flash floods wash away gravel or bare soil. Then drought and water scarcity challenges our yields. It's a lot to take on board and, to be honest, a lot of the gardening industry seems to be in denial. I caught up with Emma O'Neill, our head gardener, about ways in which we could all participate in supporting biodiversity, no matter how tiny our growing space. I'm here with Emma O'Neill, our head gardener at Garden Organic, and we are at the NEC in Birmingham the day before the Gardener's World Live show starts. And Emma is going to give us a little tour of our beautiful garden exhibit here. And we're standing at the little entrance to it, 
And just to give you a kind of understanding, the garden is divided by a path and it's got a sort of equal rectangle on either side of the path. And then we've divided those rectangles into triangles and then each of those triangles has something different going on. So that's a little bit of a bird's eye view, but let's put some colour into that. So Emma, first of all, what are we standing on? So we've got a permeable path here. The reason we're using this is mainly to prevent things like flash flooding so that you haven't got standing water. So it will drain freely through and then in turn that will run off into your beds where the water is needed. So to describe that path, it's like a honeycomb of a, a sort of plastic mesh, I think, because of wide, like think of it as a, as a large honeycomb mesh. And then the gravel is then smoothed on top of that, um, which means that the gravel will stay in place. Yeah, that's right. So you don't want to put too much gravel on, so you don't want an excess. And we've actually, to make it more aesthetically pleasing, we've planted some drought tolerant plants just in one or two of the honeycomb. So we've used erigeron and thyme. Looks absolutely beautiful. And on my right, um, we've continued with a sort of climate resilient theme and we've got a tiny little area that's planted with drought resistant plants. Do you want to explain what we've got here? So we've got Napita here, we've got sedum which is now known as Hylotelephium, we've got a thyme, Verbena benariensis which is always fantastic for bees and pollinators, Agapanthus, some lavender, just a little way over the other side we've got the cistus, uh, Santalina and a steeper. Fantastic. And next to that, we've got um, a metre square bed, which um, has nine compartments, um, each planted with a different food crop. Do you want to just quickly say what's in those? Yes. So at the moment, we've got in there carrots, strawberries, chives. We've got dwarf French beans, some lovely salads, beetroot, kale, and I believe that's parsnip. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea of um, a bed like that is that you would rotate it through the year. Yeah, so it's in theory, you should be able to harvest something at least every month. And this size has proved that it will feed a family of four. Obviously, it's great if you can use quick crops, so salads, radishes, spring onions, but you're rotating each section really. And so a lot of it is about successional sowing. Okay. Um, underneath a, a nice archway um, and uh, we're looking now at two um, triangles of lawn, um, one on either side of the path. Um, and the lawn is punctuated with tiny little colourful uh, individual plants, but it's not a meadow. So it's just to explain to people that the, the, the lawn has been planted with separate flowers. Can you explain that? Yeah, so it's clusters of short flowering lawn and we've used things that are going to attract as many beneficials and pollinators. So we've used the common daisy, easy to get hold of, um, red clover, we've got some cornflower, we did have some buttercup, I believe, in there. Um, so it's just dotted around and we've individually planted those in into the garden. And it's so people are very, very keen on No Mow May, which is a great campaign. But a lot of people wonder what to do once May is over. And then they're thinking, do we need to regrow our lawn? This way you don't have to. You can continue to keep it sort of fairly short and you can mow paths through it. It's absolutely great idea. So, so actually, it's a continual flowering um, lawn that that you can you can have patches of it flowering, other patches of it not yeah, flowering. You exactly. can mow it. You can plant, uh, divide and plant the the, the, the flowers in yourself. Um, great idea, absolutely great idea. And uh, and backing that, of course, we've got a um, beautiful really beautiful but very tiny orchard I mean that's extraordinary <laughs> I'm trying to explain the size it's probably uh two meters by one meter maybe I think it's two by something like 1.6 so very close <laughs> yeah. and within this tiny bed we've got a, a, a cherry tree we've got a crabapple tree we've got a pear tree we've got gooseberries 
we've got raspberries and we've got black currants. I mean, that's extraordinary. And strawberries underplanted um, throughout. So a really productive bed. But actually, a lot of people would think that they don't have room for an orchard, but this is really making me think twice. Are these particularly special types of tree for small areas? These are ideal varieties for a smaller garden and um, they're all going to produce fruit for you. And we've underplanted it with the fruit bushes to maximise the space. In addition to that, we've obviously put tagetes and calendula in, which will attract more pollinators. And obviously the more pollinators you get, the more fruit you're going to get. And in actual fact, we've already got cherries ripening on the cherry tree. Yes, we have. They look absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> OK, we've come to the end of our permeable path and we're turning round to go back again. Um, so um, on the other side then, um, we start with the beach hedge again, which is a lovely uh, motif that goes through. And then down the outer edge of this garden and also on the other side, we've got a lovely long lavender hedge, my absolute favourite, completely lovely way to sort of finish off and to, to give an opportunity for all sorts of insects to to use and hide and yeah. you know you always talk about those small hedges as being an insect superhighway don't you yeah that's exactly right because we want to encourage people it doesn't have to be a, a massive hedge we're lucky to have enough space to have the beach hedge but we've used lavender here but at work we have um, a rosemary hedge as well and they're absolutely buzzing with pollinators and and useful too um, a herbal hedge absolutely lovely um, and uh, at the back end of this stretch of the garden, we've got the perennial vegetable veg. Now, talk us through what perennial veg, because they're looking really lovely and mature. So there's several things in here. And one of the great things about perennial veg is they extend your harvesting season. In addition to that, all of these flower and have really pretty flowers that, again, is sort of tapping into our biodiversity idea. So we've got skirret, which you eat the roots of, so a cross between carrots and parsnips. We've got a Turkish rocket, which is also known as French scorzonaria. We've got ricardii, which is a perennial salad leaf, some horseradish, Jerusalem artichoke, which is a firm favourite with the bees, and some sorrel walking onions and then again we've underplanted that with cut and come again salads and of course the wonderful thing about jerusalem artichokes and other perennial veg too but jerusalem artichokes throw up the most amazing yellow flowers don't they which the pollinators love um, and you've got some other smaller crops in here do you want to talk us through those yeah, so we've just underplanted it with some cut and come again salads so that we're using up every space possible it's really working i can already see um, hoverflies coming in. I can see the salads responding to the sun that's shining down on them. The garden is, you know, a matter of hours old and yet the wildlife has already moved in. It's amazing really, isn't it? It is. We've definitely had a lot of bee activity already. <laughs> bee action. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, we're looking across at the Bug Hotel um, which is two sort of uh, cages, if you like, made of, of, of gabions that you'd, you'd pick up at a builder's merchant. And inside those are stuffed all sorts of things like straw and logs and seed heads and bits of old bamboo and just reusing all this natural material. It looks absolutely brilliant. And between it, we've got a log pile um, in miniature. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just terrific and over the top of the bug hotel they're very snug in there because we've put a nice little green roof on top uh, which is planted with sedums and that will slow the rainwater runoff uh, down into the pond now tell us about this gorgeous pond so obviously part of the garden is to attract as much biodiversity and wildlife as possible one of the easiest ways to do that is a pond this is a relatively small pond it's roughly a meter by sort of 70 centimetres. We've got some lovely pond plants in there that are have been picked specifically to extend the flowering season to attract the pollinators. So they start sort of mid to late spring and they'll end up sort of early autumn. And surrounded this area, we've also tried to reimagine the weed because after all, a weed is just a plant in the wrong place. So we've got these two little weed beds. They're absolutely gorgeous with teasels, uh, a couple of little thistles, 
Wales. Um, what can I see over there? Um, have we got? We've got uh, some dandelions. No, it just looks absolutely terrific. Is that good? Good King Henry as well in the yes. corner. Yes, I've got loads of that in my garden. Absolutely loads of it. <laughs> um, and then um, just as you sort of exit the garden, there's another lovely little flower patch just filled with cosmos and some other flowers just to just to show um, diversity of planting. Yeah, and also these have been picked because they're single flowers, which obviously pollinators favour, and they've got quite a long flowering season. So there's a, a small patch of cosmos which will flower right throughout the summer. The verbenia banariensis, which adds some sort of architectural height, and then the echinacea. And all of those are really great for beneficial insects. No, it works absolutely brilliantly. And we've even squeezed in a tiny little cold frame, um, which has got some salad on the go. Um, and we've got hanging up off the arch, we've got the most lovely sort of rain sculpture going on. Tell me about that. So it's a rain chain. So unfortunately, we didn't actually have room for a water butt in this garden. So this was a way to show people an alternative to saving water, which is via a rain chain. And it tips tips the water out from flower to flower and we've got our watering can underneath to capture, so capture it. the water so you always got a full watering can what a brilliant idea and of course we haven't forgotten composting either we've got a hot bin in the back corner for your kitchen waste so everything you could possibly want in an organic garden in this tiny weenie space emma you've done a fantastic job thank you Time now for the post bag. I'm here with Chris and Anton. Uh, first question, we're going to go straight in. I've read that nematodes are a good solution to the slug problem I have in my garden, but I'm not quite sure what they are and how they're used. Can you shed any light? Oh, Anton, let's just stop and remind ourselves, what is a nematode? So nematodes are microscopic worms. Um, they are actually millions of species of nematodes, and they are very common in the soils in the UK. And just like witches and fairies, there are good nematodes and bad nematodes. So, <laughs> so, so the good ones are really useful. They help to break down organic matter in the soil and break down our compost. And the bad ones um, might attack the roots of some of our plants, particularly the potato cyst nematode. But there are also some nematodes which are naturally in the soil which attack slugs, which is very convenient. So when we buy a pack of nematodes, um, we buy the species which are sort of naturally occurring in the soil, but we give them a bit of a helping hand by sort of augmenting the population that's there. So when you when you buy a pack of nematodes to treat slugs, you're getting a pack that looks a little bit like a load of peanut butter, actually. And that's a sort of suspension <laughs> which these nematodes are all living in. And then you can water them into the soil. And when you do dissolve the peanut butter, you can't actually see the nematodes, can you? No, you need a microscope to see them. Okay. So, uh, so Chris, have you used them? I have. I have indeed. I think the big, big rule with them is timings and conditions. They're not cheap, okay? They're not cheap. I would only use them if I was having a particularly heavy infestation, put it that way, where I think oh, things were getting away from me. A bit like I use organic slug pellets. I use them as a bit of a last resort, to be fair, and I'll use all the other methods before that, traps, barriers, picking off. But definitely you need to uh, make sure the conditions are right. I think the soil temperature important maybe above five degrees so the soil is active otherwise if you put them in cool soil they'll just perish straight away so timings for that as well is really important damp conditions are really important obviously so you need moisture reasonable temperature so you need to look at these things i think a very important point is make sure you don't put a really fine rose because you'll obviously put them in water stir them make sure they're mixed up water them on if it's a fine rose they might all get jammed in the rose of the watering can so maybe an open neck watering can or a or a coarse hole watering can is quite important i think also once you've got them on there once they've done it keep maintain those damp conditions if you put it on and it's sunny for a week they're just they're just going to die and you're going to get nowhere with it so make sure the soil is damp i would do it early in the morning obviously because the moisture has a much bigger impact on the soil and then make sure that damp that moisture is maintained for at least two weeks and hopefully they'll get down and take away. For me, I was always after the keel slugs, the subterranean slugs, the ones you don't see naked to the eye. They will do a good job on those, hopefully. It's a bit hard to um, to, to, to judge, really, how well it's doing because obviously the, the, the activity of the slugs, all the snails, 
are, are responsive to the weather conditions. But I think that if you're, you've got a crop you're really into or crops that you're really into and you feel they're getting attacked a lot, then nematodes may be an option. I, I remember that they do come with, you know, quite comprehensive instructions and it's probably really important to follow those instructions completely to the letter. When you do when you do apply them and you've done it, you've followed the instructions and you, you've, you've done everything, how can you actually tell if they really genuinely have worked, Anton? Well, like Chris said, it can be difficult to to tell whether it's the nematodes that's having an effect or it might be a whole host of other things like the weather conditions, which has a big sort of effect on slugs. So, I mean, if you were going to be really sort of rigorous, you could try having putting a trial and watering them on one half and not the other half. But um, probably most people don't have space to do that in their gardens. Thus speaks the scientist. I like the idea of a control group. <laughs> members, members experiment coming up. <laughs> All right. So moving on. In previous years, I've had problems with slightly soft sunken brown patches on some of my sweet peppers. Sometimes these spread and the whole pepper is lost. This year I've watered meticulously. I think I have, but some of the green fruits are still showing the same symptoms. Can you shed any light on what this might be and suggest any preventative measures? So, Anton, what is this? This really does sound like it is blossom end rot. And this is a sort of physiological thing. It's actually caused by a lack of calcium in sort of big structures like fruits, because calcium is quite difficult to move around the plants. And so it tends to be bigger structures which this suffers from so it happens in quite a lot of things it happens in tomatoes you see the ends where the flower has dropped off you see that turning black and sort of corky you see it in apples sometimes you see these little bitter brown bits you you see even see it in potatoes you see little brown spots in there as well and even though the problem is caused by a lack of calcium in the tissues this is more often a result of irregular watering. That is what's actually causing the problem. Um, And that can be really difficult in hot weather, just keeping up with the watering. So even though you might think he's sort of meticulously watering, he might just be struggling to give the plant enough or under those sort of dry conditions, the plant might be just sort of struggling generally. So um, yeah, it can be quite a difficult problem to get around. Chris, have you suffered problems with blossom end rot? I have. I had it on peppers a couple of years ago. Um, the first thing I'd say about this, I agree obviously about the, the calcium levels, but it's a, an irrigation thing. If So if you can be regular and even in your irrigation, I think that'll help a lot. So early morning, if you can get down to give it a drink, I like to uh, water deep, but not all the time. So the roots get down, you know, and the, the plant establishes itself. Uh, mulching, I think, would help. So I tend to mulch around it around the peppers and my tomatoes and my aubergines because this happens with my aubergines as well. And then I'll put a concave in the mulch so it's not up the stem of the plant. And then I can puddle, what we call puddling in horticulture. I can give it a really, really deep drink, let it soak through the soil. And if you can do that early morning and make sure you're doing that pretty regularly, but constant, so you're not it's not, so it's not haphazard. I reckon you reduce the chances of it. Another thing I would say is seaweed extract. Calcified uh, um, seaweed extract is really important because that'll have that calcium in. That's a lot of other minor um, trace elements that will help bat off that that um, blossom rot. You will maybe hear a bit of advice about Epsom salt. Uh, not for this. Uh, Epsom salts are, are magnesium-based. They're a soil strengthener. They help strengthen the the walls of the cells. So if you have a, a camellia or something and it's yellowing up. Water Epsom salts on it will green it up again. It's got nothing to do with a uh, with a blossom in rot. Funnily enough, some uh, yes unhelpful advice circulating. Um, so come to the experts and ask us, and we'll tell you the truth. Don't use Epsom salts on blossom end rot because it won't work. Um, Anton, you mentioned that the, the watering again. If you've got anything more specific around that, so one thing I found is obviously if you've got things like pot plants and you're going away for a few days or something, then you can actually buy these drip irrigation watering kits at a really reasonable price. Um, you can get some which are solar powered as well. You get ones which have got, a lot of them have got a timer on them as as well. And I've just found this has been really useful just to keep the plants watered when you're away so that they don't get stressed out. Really easy to set up as well. The one I've got even 
it's like got a, a fitting so that it goes into a water butt as well. So and it filters, it's got a little filter on it as well. So it filters any of the muck out. And it's yeah, it works really brilliantly, but really easy to use. That sounds like a perfect result uh, plan to me, doesn't it? Because you just got that means you've got that constant watering. It's not haphazard, it's not drying moist, dry moist. And I think that's what stresses the plant. And it's important to know if a plant's dropping its flowers, that means it's not happy because it why would it waste all that energy trying to produce flower? fruit if it thought it was in difficult times you're better to get your roots down get your leaves out and you flower when times are better so it's quite a good indication that the plant's struggling a bit and then you can amend your your horticulture to, to make sure the plant feels healthier and happier and, and i think you both made it really clear this can happen in the greenhouse and it can also happen outside um and so actually the regular watering and funnily enough we're perhaps not so regular when it's an outside crop because you kind of think it's a little bit less uh, dependent on you than an inside crop, but actually both are just as susceptible. So in fact, those watering regimes are just as important inside and out. So another question here. Some people recommend stacking the soil up the stem of the plant to encourage stable plants with more root than usual. My garden centre sold me grafted plants where I shouldn't cover the graft. Which is best practice, please? So Anton, which plants should we try and plant deep? Yeah, it does depend very much on the plant. I mean, the point of planting things deep is because it encourages more rooting. So you end up with a more resilient plant because it's basically sort of taking up more water and nutrients, especially in sort of things like pot plants. So tomatoes, that works really well. People do encourage deep planting of tomatoes because basically each of those nodes where where the leaves comes out, those can also form roots as well. So planting tomatoes deep does work. Um, potatoes, obviously, is good to earth them up because you encourage more tubers to be sort of formed at those nodes as well. But there's a lot of plants that really doesn't work so well. I mean, particularly most of the cucurbids. I mean, things like cucumbers, if you plant those too deep, you'll just end up with them rotting off and that and that just doesn't work so yeah it does depend very much on the plant and chris um tell us about what you would do with a plant that's got a graft on it well most grafted plants i mean lots of different plants are grafted the normal reason you do it say like a, a gra- roses are famous for grafting the reason they are is because you'd use it all clematis even you'd use a wild rose or a wild clematis a native species or a species plant and then you graft a hybrid a, a man-made plant onto the top of that. And what that means is that rootstock means the plant is more resilient, pest and disease, um, watering, varying conditions. But that graft's quite delicate, particularly in the early days. So if you were to cover it, you'll do two things. So if, if you did it on a rose, then the wild rootstock will go, oh, hang on, happy days, I'll start sending out my shoots and then you compromise the top of the rose and vice versa that can happen because then the top of the rose will start to root in and you cause all sorts of complications so when it becomes to anything let's look at it this way anything temperate anything grafted like fruit roses clematis and there's a lot of this i would never cover a graft you want them to maintain the, that that join above the soil level so you're not encouraging uh, rotting and also uh, um, conversion, going back to what it was what it was before. So, final question: When should I harvest garlic, Chris? I think as soon as the pasta's on the stove. I think that's probably the best time. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, well, there's two things. Like, a little bit of advice I'd give here. I, I have mixed um, results with garlic. I really do. I have quite a heavy soil on my allotment, and I think that kind of plays a role. I think it kind of likes a low, good loamy soil or a sandier soil. I think that's probably maybe. People might disagree with that, but that's my feeling. You you can plant garlic in the autumn like you would a normal bulb or plant it in the spring. Sometimes I get so busy, my garlic goes in in the spring and I have poor results with it. I think giving it the winter to get its roots down that helps the garlic form. The other thing about it is also is they like this cold snap to stimulate it, to get the bulbs to swell out, I think. So once you've got the bulb in, make sure you get that happens to it, that it gets the cold conditions, probably do it in the autumn. And then when it comes to harvesting, just wait till its leaves are starting to yellow. Now, I do this with my potatoes as well, my onions. When the plant starts to look tired, what it's saying is, well, I've been around enough this season. I'm going to go, I'm going to retreat, I'm going to go down to my bulb, 
and I'm going to sit it out till times are better. So that means you get a better bulb, you get a better tuber, you get a better because the plant is putting its energies into those storage units to make sure it gets through the more difficult times. So as soon as you see that plant looking tired, lift, okay? And then with garlic, you get it in a nice cool position, put them on a the rack, let them dry out, and then all the flavour hits into the bulb as well. That's great advice. I've never had much success with garlic. I'm learning all the time. But Anton, apparently you're a bit of a whiz when it comes to growing garlic. I perhaps wouldn't go that far, but I certainly <laughs> seem to get reasonably successful harvests at home anyway. Um, I, I do always plant it in the autumn. I, I find that seems to work better for me, usually about sort of November time. I find that's when you not so many other tasks as well in the garden. So that's that's a good time to to be doing it. And yeah, we s- seem to get reasonably good good yields. I think the main thing is to be quite patient when you're harvesting it. I think social media is a sort of culprit in this one. You see lots of other people sort of harvesting their garlic in June sort of time. And quite often in June, you, you know, you could be leaving it for quite a bit longer to bulk up a bit more. So just be patient and um, don't pay too much attention to what everybody else is doing. Anything you would advise around, you know, adding material to the soil or, or you know, what, what, are the, what are your tips for success? I think reasonable amounts of organic matter are good because they will, that will not only sort of hold on to the moisture under dry conditions, but it'll help it to drain better as well so that the bulbs don't um, rot off. And um, they do need a reasonable amount of fertility as well. So if you put some compost on beforehand as well, I think that's that will help with it. Um, you just get bigger bulbs you don't want to really overdo the nitrogen because you can and that can encourage more rotting but um you do need some oomph in the soil i like that expression oomph in the soil that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> you can't your soul's doing whatever it's got some oomph <laughs> So assuming I then managed to grow um, some successful garlic and I harvest it at the right time, how can I make it last through the winter? Well, when I lift my garlic, which is not, not always the biggest garlic in the world, I just tend to hang it in my tool shed at the allotment, which is quite a cool, low-degree temperature. So I'll dry it on a rack out in the sun on the, on the end bit next to the shed, and then I'll literally flip it up and put it upside down and hang it on a bit of string on the allotment. And that seems to work okay. If I bring it back to the house... It's quite a warm flat, and I think it then starts to shoot and try to come back to life again. So I like to keep it in quite cool temperatures in my shed, and I hang it up there on a piece of string. And also I think it looks rather pretty when I open the door. I think it's important that it does need a sort of warm, hot period for a few weeks when you harvest it, just to cure it, to get those sort of skins to form. And, and then that performs that sort of protective layer. So if you don't harvest it on a summer's evening and... And eat it straight from the soil. Well, you can do. I mean, it's very nice. It's green garlic is actually it's got a very nice flavour to it as well. But obviously, if you've eaten it, it's not going to last so long. Uh, well, on that note, thank you very much for all your comprehensive advice, um, Anton and Chris. Goodbye. 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 you've picked up something new from this episode that you'll try out as climate conditions change around us let us know how you get on before we go i must thank our new sponsors viridian nutrition makers of ethical vitamin supplements with an organic heart viridian are long supporters of garden organic and have been at the forefront of the organic movement for decades you'll find their organic supplements and natural remedies in your local health food store Next month, we'll be turning our thoughts to preparing for winter food crops and flowers and also starting to think ahead to what we can do now to make our gardens as nature-friendly and productive as possible next year. If you want some friendly advice on this, check out our website at gardenorganic.org.uk and you'll also find all sorts of tips for organic growing on our social media channels too. And don't forget to look us up on the Gardener's World TV programme. Our Heritage Seed Library was featured about halfway through episode 11, which you can find on BBC Catch Up. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. That's it. Until next time. <laughs>